Thank you. That was actually a great intro because that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, <clears throat> I, I want to share a little bit with you about how what being part of this community has meant to me. Um, when my husband and I started going to Grace Downtown many years ago, uh, the idea of intentional community was something new to us, and it really honestly was like a buzzword to me, and it didn't have a lot of meaning. Um, but over time, I started to develop some really deep relationships, and I came to value um, being in community, being in community with a group of people that we were bound simply by our belief in Christ. And they weren't necessarily people that I would be friends with other than that, um, and able to, to share the, the deep and messy places in our life and share our stories. When we came here to Meridian Hill, I had this sense that I was starting over. Like, now I'm going to have to meet new people, and I'm going to have to build these relationships again and build this kind of trust thing so that I can share my stories with people. Um, about the time of the retreat last fall, I felt like God was challenging me to sort of flip that, flip that script, um, that I don't trust the people in the community because of the people in the community, because we're all going to disappoint each other at some point. Um, but I trust the people in community because I trust God, and this is the community that he's placed me in, and because I trust him, I can trust you. Um, so at the retreat, I decided that I would do that, and I would trust the women in my small group um, with my story, and um, so I, I did. Um, one of the first things that Dr. Thompson talked about at the retreat was he was referencing in Genesis 1 where it says that the earth was formless and void and God's spirit swept in, and he said, where in your life is formless and void and you want God's spirit to sweep in? And I immediately knew there was a place of idolatry in my life that I really wanted God to, to work in. Um, I grew up in what a counselor has told me was um, benign neglect, which means that I was fed and clothed and you know, my physical needs were taken care of, but I was emotionally neglected. And when I was 16, I met Jesus, and Jesus promised that he would always love me and always be there for me, um, and he has been, and he's done this remarkable work of healing in my life. But many years before I met Jesus, I met Oreos, and Oreos promised me the same thing. Oreos promised to always love me, always be there for me, and I was young and I believed it, and it was a lie, but it's a lie that has been so deeply entrenched in my life that I have never been able to root it out. And so I shared this stuff with the women in my group, and these were women, some of whom I had never met before, some of whom I knew a little bit, but none of whom I was close to. And I shared things with them that I had never shared with anybody before in my life. I shared things with them that I don't think I'd ever admitted to, any, to myself. Um, and one of the last things I shared at the last time that we met as a group is I said, um, I'm really afraid to open up this area of my life to God because I'm afraid that it won't work and that next year I'll be here at this retreat and I'll be in the exact same place. And one of the women looked at me and she said, well, so what? So what if you are? Isn't that what we're here for? To walk with you and to support you, whether you ever get this right or you ever overcome it or you struggle with this for the rest of your life? And that, that Grace to fail and know that I was still loved is what gave me the strength and courage to try to, to open up this area of my life to God and ask him to really root it out um, and do whatever he needed to do. Um, and that, cr that moment crystallized for me what community is. Community is real people taking the abstract truths of God that he'll always love me and always be there for me and actually having a human person say it to my face and know that it's true. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite old hymns is, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus, and the chorus says, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, uh, no. 
Um, now I'm blanking on it. Jesus, Jesus, <laughs> how I love him, how I've proved him or and or. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. And one of the ways that Jesus is giving me grace to trust him more is by allowing me to be part of this community. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much. Praise God for you. And we'd love to hear your story. If you have just some part of your life, even just the smallest piece of what God is teaching you, what God's doing in your life, not because it has a neat and tidy bow tied up at the end of it, uh, but just to share the work in progress that we all are, uh, please let us know. We'd love to give you a chance also to give a little bit of testimony uh, to God's grace. We're going to take our offering now, and this offering is a, a, an act of worship to God, an act of thanksgiving for what he's doing in your life, for what he's done in Anne's life. Think of her, too, as you give gifts. Uh, but this also is a practical way to resource a community that's trying to be authentic in our storytelling like this. It takes real concrete stuff like community, relationships, like money even, uh, to do the eternal work of God's kingdom. So we'd love for you to participate. If you're brand new to the church, don't feel obligated or pressured to give, but you are always welcome to. Uh, let's give our offering as worship to Christ. Good morning. The scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it can be found on page 6 of your bulletin. 
if you'd like to read along. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, <coughs> Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight. Sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. Lord Almighty God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. <laughs> your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. The word of the Lord. Hey, sometimes all you need to do is read the word of God. Be reading the word of God, people. We're studying the life of David and we're moving along in this fascinating story coming to one of the high points of this narrative in the book of 2 Samuel. Let's take a look together, but first, let's pray. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're coming to you expecting grace upon grace because you promised to pour out 
your spirit upon your people through your words. And so we expect nothing less. We expect nothing less, not because we deserve it, but because of your promise, because of your grace, because of who you are, not because of who we are. In fact, we're asking for you to overcome all that we are in our resistance to you, in our weariness, in our pride, in our will to edit what you have to say to accommodate our own sin or accommodate our own limitations. Break through all of that in Jesus' name. Speak to our hearts and glorify yourself in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have recently begun this annual season of ashes and agony, of soul-searching and self-sacrifice, of giving things up we once held dear. Of course, it's also a season of hope and joy. And while I'm sure some of you are sure I'm talking about Lent, I'm actually talking about March Madness. And thank you. Sometimes you need that as a preacher. By giving up things, of course, by giving up things we once held dear, certainly I'm talking about sleep, productivity at work, and small children, right? Uh, you know, Villanova and Florida State fans, they didn't even show up for church, all right? Uh, didn't even make it to church, pray for them. You know, speaking of agony, one of the most fun and agonizing things about this college basketball tournament is the way that you always experience wild swings in emotion, sometimes just in a matter of seconds. You know, where a team is just devastated, sure that they're about to lose and go home after an, uh, the opposing team scores with just a few seconds left on the clock when suddenly a hero teammate turns around and hits a miracle shot at the buzzer, sending the team into the next round and sending still stunned teammates and celebrating fans into a dog pile right there in the middle of the court. Wild swings of emotion. It's what makes it such an electrifying experience every March. Well, today's passage is a story like that. One with wild swings in emotion for David. Almost in a matter of seconds, moving from gratitude to disappointment to incomparable delight. Did you notice it? Israel was entering its golden age, a period of unprecedented peace and prosperity. As verse 1 in this passage tells us, King David was settled in his palace, and at least for the time being, the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. Finally, finally, after years of anxiousness, danger, and uncertainty. After years for David as a homeless 
fugitive, running for his life as King Saul chased after him in a jealous rage seeking to kill him, finally David could exhale. Finally, David had a home again. In fact, now a palace built of cedar. David was grateful, as you can imagine. Naturally, he wanted to do something for God, this God who had done so much for him. And so as we see in verse 2, David said to the prophet Nathan, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God, this great symbol of God's presence, remains in a tent. David decided to build God a permanent home, a palace, as a tribute to God, as a gift to his great God. So when do we get started? When's the ribbon-cutting ceremony, right? That's not exactly how things go, is it? Instead, this is a story about a plan denied, about a promise made, and about a posture assumed. First, a plan denied, then a promise made, and thirdly, a posture assumed. Let's take a look. First, a plan denied. David approaches God with the best of intentions. The passage actually gives us no real reason to be suspicious of his deepest motives. It doesn't critique them explicitly. His intentions, a grand ambition, a sincere prayer, a wonderful plan to build a temple palace for God. But in a nutshell, this is how the story goes. David says, I'm going to build God a temple. Uh, the prophet Nathan says, great idea. Then God says, no thanks. In verses 5 through 7, God tells David through his prophet, I've never needed a home, and I never actually asked for a home either. Then we're told in verse 13 that David's son Solomon would be the one to build it instead so not you and not now, that's God's answer. In other words, nope. Has that ever happened to you? This past week, while preparing for this sermon, I was thinking about all the different times in my life when God said no to my plans, my prayers. And there were many, of course, but one in particular stood out. It was when I was a senior in college, ready to graduate, barely, I might add, and looking for a job. I had prayerfully, I believe, prayerfully applied for positions at a number of different management consulting firms, which was my target. And I had this sincere desire to work hard and serve God, but I wanted to be in New York City. I was sure I needed to be in New York City. In fact, 
I tried to do everything that I could to make sure that I would be. Until I got awkward post-interview phone call after awkward post-interview phone call, each one delivering me the bad news. No, no, and no. I did eventually get an offer, a good job offer, that I did eventually take, but it was far from my first choice. And actually, it took me a long time to get over that disappointment that God had answered my prayer, my sincere prayers, and my plan with an unmistakable no. So what do you do when God says no? Are you maybe today facing closed doors? What do you do with that disappointment or even that devastation? Maybe that's how low it's sunk you. When your plan or your ambition gets interrupted or shut down. See, what you have to notice is God actually had a better plan for David. Here's what we have to understand in these moments. God only has two answers to our prayers. Yes and better. As we even hear in the promise well known in Romans 8, 28, that if you're in Christ, God works all things together for your good. And a few verses later in verse 31, where the apostle asks rhetorically, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, not even God, not even in his nose. Only and always working all things together for your good to make you more like Jesus. And sometimes God lets you see what that better is. Sometimes only much later. As I mentioned, I eventually did get a great job at a great firm. And I was badly disappointed. My ego was surely badly bruised, but only later on, years later, did I learn to see how that job enabled me to spend a few years in a church community that put me in a unique situation where I could develop my pastoral gifts and grow in my love for ministry that eventually resulted in an unmistakable call to become a pastor of a local church. In fact, looking back now, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure that had I gotten my way, my way and landed a job in New York City, I may never have become a pastor, probably would have never met Paula, and I wouldn't be here today. God was giving me something perhaps better. And indeed, in fact, looking back, that better wasn't even just a redirection of call to ministry. And I'm certainly not putting ministry over against the call to be a business person in New York City at all. But the greatest better that I can see actually looking back is the way that God used that to work on my pride. To break me down in a way 
that was bitter and yet eventually sweet, to learn the sweetness of humility and Jesus-likeness deeper and deeper in places in my soul that I hadn't yet discovered yet. Sometimes God does let you see what his better way might be, but oftentimes he doesn't. In fact, usually he doesn't. I don't tell this story to mislead us, of course. But in those times of disappointment, God doesn't always tell you what he's up to specifically, but he always promises he loves you. He doesn't tell you what he's doing, but he promises he's for you. It's exactly what God offers David in this moment. You know, even as this passage finishes, God never tells David why he didn't let him build the temple. But he does tell him this. In verses 8 and 9, God reminds David of his personal history. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you where you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. In other words, do you see the evidence of God's favor in your personal life? Do you see the proof of God's presence in your story? God points David to his personal history, but then in verse 6 and 7, he also points David to the redemptive story. Salvation history. He says, I brought the Israelites out of Egypt, didn't I? And ever since, I've been moving from place to place with them. Do you see evidence of God's love in the story of God's people, not just in your life, but across history, in other people's lives, in Scripture? Do you see proof of his love for you, especially in the cross of Christ? See, we don't have a personal prophet like David had in Nathan, but actually we have something better. God's word that we can have before us and hear from God through again and again and again. God's word that gives us even better, more powerful reminders of God's favor, God's presence, and God's love. Don't you see, friends, you may never know why God said no to your plans and your prayers. But you do know this, if you are united to Jesus, it wasn't because he's forsaken you. It was not because he's punishing you or forgotten you, and it's not because he doesn't care about you. You may never know what God's alternative plan is for you, but you can rest assured in the gospel that God can only love you. God can only do you good. That can make your heart stronger, can't it? In a time of disappointment, even darkness and confusion, we don't hear much about it, but surely David was disappointed. God said no. But then God gave David one of the greatest yeses found in the entire Bible. 
Because this is a story not only about a plan denied, but secondly, a story about a promise made. See, nowhere does God explicitly rebuke or correct David. Clearly, there's nothing wrong with a cedar temple in itself. As verse 13 makes clear, God allows David's son Solomon to take care of that. But God here is also making the most of this opportunity to clarify for David, for the people of Israel, and for you and me, clarify who God is and how he relates to his people. Because here's the key. Every commentator that I read on this passage in the past week mentioned the same thing. That one of the reasons David would have come up with this idea of building God a temple was that that's what all the other kings in David's day would have done. David's taking cues from the world and the culture around him. See, in the ancient Near East, kings built temples to buy support from their gods, sort of at a, as, a, as a bribe, especially after a major military victory or a season of national peace or prosperity as David now enjoyed, these kings would pay tribute to their gods with a nice house, a cedar house, the best of all woods. Why? To win the gods' favor. See, God is making sure here that it's crystal clear. Do you hear that's not the sort of God I am. So in verse 5, God asks, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? And in the second half of verse 11, God declares, the Lord himself will establish a house for you. This is a play on words. A house could mean a physical home, that's what David had in mind, a house could also, right, mean a family or a royal dynasty, that's what God had in mind. So with joy and with stunning generosity, God sort of turns the tables on David, you want to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. Dear friends, do you know a God like this? See, whether if you're new to the Christian faith or if you've been swimming in Christian waters for a long time, do you know this is what separates the God of the Bible from any other vision of God? You cannot purchase his support with the good things that you do. You cannot pay for his blessings. You cannot win his favor. His love is given to you unconditionally. You don't have to buy his love. God in his love has bought you with his own blood in his son to bring you into his family to make you his own. His favor is granted to you as a gift 
to be received, not a wage to be earned or paid. Here is a relationship of grace. Defined not by what you build for God, but by what he builds for you. Not by what you do for him, but by what he has done for you. Not by what you promise God, but by what God promises you. Behold a God of grace. Behold your God of promises. So God makes David what one scholar describes as an enduring, unconditional promise sworn on divine oath. This here in this passage is a covenant between God and David, and it's just dripping with blessings. Many of these are unique to David, but many also address some of the deepest longings in every single one of our hearts. So in the second half of verse 9, God says to David, Now, David, I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. He's addressing our longing for significance. Who doesn't want to know that they matter? Who doesn't want a name, an identity that's rooted, that's important, that's beloved, that's real, that's known? And in the first half of verse 10, God says, And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed, referring to the promised land. Here God's addressing our deep longing for belonging. Because we were made to be rooted, not wanderers. We were built to be connected to one another in community, to people, but we were also made to be rooted in a place, in a home, in a land, in a neighborhood, in a city, in a world. And did you hear what God promised in the second half of verse 10? Wicked people and will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Here's a glorious addressing by God of our deep longing for rest because who doesn't long for rest from opposition and oppression? Rest from exhaustion of building and protecting your reputation, your name. Rest from anxiousness and fear. Rest from the shame and guilt of hidden sin. And finally, God promises in verse 12, when your days are over, you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Here God's addressing our deep longing for a legacy. Because who doesn't hope that their labor of their lives will last? Will not just disappear and come to a sudden end with utter meaninglessness. Whether through their accomplishments or through their relationships, who doesn't long for their lives, in fact, to last forever? 
I mean, just noticed in this bucket of promises how many times God says, I will. I will. I will. This is so unusual for us to hear promises made so boldly like this. Because after all, we live in a world of broken promises. Even this past week, our washer broke and Paula and I have been battling a repair person who came but did only half the job, then just disappeared. And even though the company offers a service warranty, they just stopped returning our calls. I have no idea where they are, right? And so if my clothes stink a little bit, you will excuse me. You understand now, right? But this is the world we live in. I mean, it's not just the repair guy. It's me, too. It's my heart. Isn't it yours, too? I mean, we usually try to work around obligating ourselves, but God's not like us. He goes out of his way to put himself on the hook to do us good. God is a promising God. Do you know God primarily, friends, today as an I will God, a God of promises, or do you know him primarily as a you shall or a you shall not God, a God of commands? And where have you been looking to give yourself significance, a name, belonging, a legacy, and rest. This passage offers these things, these things and more in the gospel of grace. And one day, God promised David that a king would come and deliver these things, a kingdom that would heal the world. But who would deliver these promises? How would God make good on his promise? Old Testament scholar Joyce Baldwin notes that this passage is a promise that looks far ahead of David's own lifetime. When a greater than David would nevertheless crown with new significance all that David had stood for as king. So who would be this future king who'd establish this promised kingdom? Well, we're given a few clues, aren't we? He would be an offspring of David, a, a son of David, who'd rise up and reign after David had died. Well, could that be Solomon? his son. But this promised king, we're told, would give his people ultimate rest, not temporary rest, but total rest from their enemies. And not Solomon and none of David's descendants would bring such an end to conflict. None of them would even provide rest from the ultimate enemy of sin and death. And who could live up to this promise that the king would somehow reign forever? As it says in verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And in verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Forever? Forever? Who 
could conquer even death, the enemy of forever. What king could reign forever? Unless, unless, he would be human, but also more than human. Unless he was a a son of David, and also at the same time, a son of God. Who could this foreshadow, who could this be but King Jesus? The greater son of David, the true son of David, Jesus, who, though God himself came into our world as a no-name In order to die for us who've sold our names, our identities, to sin. We who through him can be forgiven and given a new name, Christ's name, and a new identity in him. Jesus who forever dwelled in the presence of God his Father but gave it all up, all up on the cross where he lost His eternal belonging plunged into the forsakenness of hell that we deserve so that you and I might find and recover belonging, that we might belong to God, reconcile to him, and that we might belong to one another in fellowship and family, that we could have a home with God. Do you want to come home today? Jesus, who suffered infinite restlessness for our sin on the cross, that we might be brought into the rest of heaven. True rest from the enemies, the ultimate enemies of sin and of death, because Jesus died and so conquered death. And as this resurrected king, his kingdom of grace indeed would be forever and ever and ever. Amen. And we find that if we're the people of this king, citizens of this kingdom, whose lives are being changed by his promise of grace, and guess what? Then the community, the church, begins to become a, a, a different sort of place for our neighbors, neighbors who are weary, who feel forgotten, where we could become a place where people are loved and affirmed in a way where they get the message that they matter to us because they matter to God in Christ, that they're significant in God's sight, a place where people can finally feel like they belong here even if they're misfits out there. A place where people can find refuge and rest. Will we be the true people of the king? Will we be the sort of community that Sister Anne spoke about earlier? Can we be the home of this king, the king of grace? We see a plan denied, a promise made, and finally, to close, a posture assumed. David hears all this. We hear all this. How did David respond? David responds in verse 28, I mean, sorry, sorry, verse 18 through 29, with overflowing thanksgiving and humble praise. 
I, I can only imagine what he was feeling. I think our sister Rachel embodied some of the raw and real overflow of emotion that must have struck David as he received with great